I get my dad back today, guys? <laughs> Colectivo Raíces presenta su programa Espejos de Aztlán Información, arte, cultura Bienvenidos Buenas tardes Nuevo México Mi nombre es Rafael Martínez And I am your Espejos de Aztlán host for tonight's show Join me in the production of the show is Froilán Orozco The voice that you heard at the top of our program is of Corny Albu Muhammad, the daughter of Kadim, who took sanctuary in an Albuquerque church for nearly two years to avoid a deportation notice that he had been served in 2017. For today's show, we will be going over what sanctuary means, a brief history of the sanctuary movements, and most importantly, the impacts that sanctuary has on families. We will be telling Kadim's sanctuary journey through the poignant words of Courtney. Today's Espejo de Aztlán show is an audio documentary intended to provide you with insights into the world of sanctuary by those who experience it day in and day out. We will be going back and forth in time to present you with important moments for the Albu Muhammad family. We will also intersect Kadim's story with Emma Membrano Sordo's sanctuary story, an enduring woman who had also taken sanctuary right before Kadim. In this first segment... Corny tells us the story of receiving the letter that would turn her whole world upside down. When I was 17, there was a letter in the mail, actually. Sadly, I was the one that received it, and it was the letter of removal. It literally said the letter of removal on it, and it had my dad's name, and it had a bring an ID and all that in a bag full of your clothes, like not over 25 pounds. And so I was like, really, like, what is this? Like, this is how they do it? This is what they send out? Like, he's been here for... 20 plus years and this is all he gets you guys just send him a letter with his id and a bag like that really made me angry and it was like you kind of just wiped away all of the stuff that he had started here like if he doesn't see this as his home why would he have started a family why would he have given four children life like if he didn't think this was his home he didn't seek sanctuary until july 13th until he had missed his final order of removal at ICE on July 13th. And so that's when sanctuary became like real. On July 13th of 2017, Kadim would enter a status of sanctuary that would last nearly two years. We had the opportunity of following the story alongside the family to see the multiple developments. So when the family received the word that the order of removal had been vacated, you can only imagine the sense of relief from the family and also the community of sanctuary volunteers. I got the opportunity to walk alongside Courtney at the press conference at First Congregation Church just a few weeks ago on June 26th of 2019. How are you feeling? Nervous? <laughs> I feel like I'm always nervous. Right. As she prepared yet for another press conference but this time to share some good news. Two years ago, I never expected for my dad to go into sanctuary for so long. Now that we're here today, now that he gets to go home, it's like, wow. I was 17 when all this happened, and now I'm 19, starting my life. I get everything back. Like, you don't know how much was taken from me. We wanted to tell Kadim's sanctuary story through his daughter, Courtney, because we felt that she embodied the direct impacts that families in sanctuary go through. At her young age, she had to make life decisions unlike most 17-year-olds in this country. 
On this next segment, she speaks briefly on how sanctuary impacted her educational journey. Escuchemos. I was 17. I was a senior in high school. It was my first semester, and I had a 3.5. Going into my second semester, my GPA dropped to a 2.5. It was just like really hard to focus on school when everything in my life was kind of falling apart. And I almost risked not graduating. I actually graduated late. I graduated in July of that summer. So that was super hard. I went from like really smart, like graduating on time, and then to not graduating with my friends. It was like a big shift for me. It was hard. Not everybody understood why I was missing so much school. Making sure my dad was okay was a big thing for me. I needed to see him every morning, see him every night. There would be days where he wouldn't get up, get out of bed. And it's like, how can I go to school when I'm worried about if he's even going to get out of bed today? Like, I need to be the person that's there for him and make sure he's awake, eating, drinking water, smiling for the day. It was the little things that I was more worried about. And so I decided to focus more on my family than focus on school. Now that you've gotten a glimpse into some of the impacts of sanctuary, you might be asking yourself, what is the sanctuary business we're talking about in today's programming? Well, Daniel Vega, Sanctuary Coordinator for the New Mexico Faith Coalition for Immigrant Justice, will be providing us with a literal definition of sanctuary. In the practical sense, sanctuary is a place of shelter. It is a place where someone at risk of deportation faces very great risk and danger if they were to be deported back to their country of origin. Next, Tina Cachao, sanctuary organizer, provides us with context into sanctuary from a faith community's perspective. To me, sanctuary means using the power of the institution of the church to resist the racist policies that are happening in our country. It means turning the policies of removal of people of color from this land on its head and saying we're going to resist that. We're going to recognize that it's an act of faith based in thousands of years of scripture and religious history. And it's also, for me, it is a political act because the church as an institution is an institution of power. So we recognize the power that we have as a church institution and as people of faith to stand with people that are targeted by the history of racism and colonization on this continent. It's about the symbolic presence of the church and what it can mean. What does it mean to be a person of faith or a community of faith? And what is our responsibility? Next, Marion Bogg, lead sanctuary organizer, will provide us with a brief history into the sanctuary movements along U.S. history. Sanctuary in the 70s started with the Vietnam veterans. Then in the 80s, it was a matter of sheltering people who were fleeing for their lives from Central America and came with literally nothing, literally the clothing on their back in most cases, and were sheltered in churches. So now we have Americans living in sanctuary. And when I say Americans, I mean Americans who don't happen to have documents, but they have been here for decades. 
some have never really known any other country as home. They are part of this country. They are Americans. Marian Bach provides us with the original context for Kadim's sanctuary case. Kadim al-Bumahamed is in sanctuary. He's from Iraq. He worked in Iraq with American military forces during the Gulf Wars and for that had to leave the country came here as a refugee and is now under threat of deportation, which in his case means that if he leaves that church, he could quite literally die. We believe he would be assassinated if he returned to Iraq, and that's if the plane ride didn't kill him because he's in very poor health. He's a lovely man, but so what? What if he wasn't? He is still someone who served our country and is now under a terrible threat. I sat down with Corny to reflect on her father's sanctuary journey, and I had to ask, how did the family come to the decision of taking sanctuary in the first place? This is what she had to say. Going into sanctuary, it was a a big decision for my dad and for the family because he was going to go. He was so stubborn on doing the right thing, always, that we actually had a I think it was like an all-night discussion before the day he had to go in for his meeting with ICE that my brothers and the family decided that it would be more safe if he stayed in sanctuary and not went to his meeting. So we decided all as a family that he was going to stay in sanctuary and that we were going to do it as a family and work through all of the struggles, not knowing what was going to happen within these two years. Next, we will be listening to the original press conference when Kadim took sanctuary in 2017. We thank the New Mexico Faith Coalition for their collaboration into the original footage of Kadim and Emma. This is not just about Kadim. This is not just about the Iraqi community. This is about all of our communities who are under threat right now. A few miles away at the Quaker Meeting House, there's a, an also lovely woman named Emma, who is from Honduras, who's been in this country about 26 years. She came here as a very poor widow with small children, intending to work a few years, send money home, and then go home. And two years became three, became four, became five, and there was never a good time to stop sending money home. And then she met a man named Robert Morales and fell in love and got married. Then one of her daughters came into this country with documents. So she now has a husband, daughter, and grandson who are all U.S. citizens, whom she might never see again if she's deported. After hearing from Marian Bach, lead sanctuary coordinator, talk about Emma's original sanctuary case, we will now listen to some words from Emma on how she got connected with the New Mexico Faith Coalition for Immigrant Justice and how they would help out with her sanctuary case. Escuchemos. Yo le llamo a una casa y ella me preguntaba siempre mi situación, cómo estaba. Y un día le dije que no estaba muy segura qué estaba pasando, pero que no estaba pasando nada bien en mi caso. So ella me dijo, ¿tú voy a conseguir un número? Y ella consiguió un número. Courtney talks about the connection between Emma and the Abu Muhammad family. Emma hits close to home. 
Emma was the first person that I saw with my dad in sanctuary. Oh my God, I love Emma. I have a painting in my room, actually, that she painted for me. I think about her every day, you know. My dad does, too. It's something, oh, she's, she hits close to home. I really hope she can come back. After hearing from Emma's story, we go back to Kadeem's original press conference in 2017, before he took sanctuary. And we will hear from Justin Raymer Tamer, director from the New Mexico Faith Coalition for Immigrant Justice, who will contextualize the impact of sanctuary in our communities. We will also hear from Daniel Vega, who talks about that same fear of deportation that our communities face. Our faith compels us to join as one community, demanding we stop these senseless deportations. Vienen de partes donde están siendo controladas por pandillas, donde la policía es corrupta, y ellos enfrentan también mucho peligro de violencia en sus países. Podemos hacer cambio en nuestra ciudad, en nuestro estado y en este país. Buenas tardes, Nuevo México. Welcome back to your Espejos de Aslan show. I am your host, Rafael Martinez, and I am joined in the production of tonight's show by Florlan Orozco. For today's show, we have been listening to the story of Kadim Abu Muhammad, who took sanctuary inside of a church in Albuquerque in 2017. We also briefly began intersecting Emma's sanctuary story with that of Kadim's. We have listened to this journey through the words of Courtney, Kadim's 19-year-old daughter. For the second half of the show, we will be jumping into the impacts of sanctuary on family. We will be listening to Courtney's words on some of the key moments in sanctuary for her family. But first, we will be turning to Tina Cachao, sanctuary organizer, who will be going back to the decision of providing sanctuary to Kadim from the faith community and congregation's perspective. Escuchemos. The faith community that I've been a part of for a long time had taken a leap of faith, really. It was a profoundly spiritually-led decision to become a sanctuary community when our friend Emma entered sanctuary several months before Cottom. The community in the meeting house was a sanctuary space. I was out of town, but the day that Cottom came to the meeting house, I believe he came to understand what that meant to talk to Emma, and also because he was being targeted by ICE at the time. So... He spent some time at the meeting house because he felt safe there, because we had 24-hour accompaniment, which meant that there was always a volunteer at the door should ICE come try to arrest Emma. And so and people were trained to encounter ICE and demand that if they wanted to enter, they had to have a warrant signed by a judge and all those steps that you have to go through. Then as his case moved through the legal process, he eventually didn't stay at the meeting house because we didn't have the space and it wasn't felt to be safe for two people in sanctuary in the same location. So over the course of some weeks, he eventually ended up at his final sanctuary church about a month later in full sanctuary. There were some legal things going on with a big class action suit or about Iraq, other Iraqi nationals, and there were some stays of deportation that happened that gave him some level of protection. But it was a very tense time. I think that's what I would say. It was a very tense time for the people at Quaker meeting, including myself, because we couldn't, we didn't know how to make it work to have him there. And there wasn't another space. And I think it was a very tense time for him and his family to know where to go because he didn't feel safe going home. Next, Corny reflects on the first days of sanctuary. So when we first went into sanctuary, it was in the basement of the church. And so it's like down some stairs and you walk into the room and it, it's like a, 
a small bedroom in your own home. And then there's an even smaller room where we put three beds, one for my dad, one for my mom, and then a cot for me because I was staying at the house a little bit more because of school and work. So I was trying to stay closer to the things where I needed to be for a little while. We had to make the bathroom, like, where we could use it. So we had to remodel the shower that they had in there and then the sink, so where it had, like, a garbage disposal. And the bathrooms were kind of like stalls in a high school. There was only two stalls, and so that was different as well. And then the kitchen area was kind of, like, really small, so we had to, like, put our own stove in there and then get some, like, pots and pans from our own home and, like... Basically, we moved into like a little apartment. Tina reflects on the ways she and the volunteers bonded with the family in sanctuary. We'd become like family to each other and had a sense of wanting to just be present, to be in the community with them, like to be companions, not to do anything more than be present, be supportive, help them settle in help them, you know, get furniture in there and curtains on the walls and clean the floor and figure out how to cook in a basement and actually put contact paper on a shower. That's something that me and another one of the sanctuary volunteers from Quaker Meeting, Aaron Hulse, did just because just to sort of freshen the space up. And there were a lot of hours of just being there, meals shared. Raham's an amazing cook always offering coffee and tea, just trying to help them through that really, really tense time. You know, what is it going to be like for their daughter? How do I see my dad? And then for them, they were maintaining their home. So for Riham, it was back a lot of back and forth between their home and the sanctuary space. At first, they were all staying there together. Over time, Riham and Courtney we're staying sometimes at home and sometimes at the house. One of the things that came up sometimes was if there were cars outside that looked suspicious, seemed to be surveilling. Cotton was very aware of that kind of thing because he'd been surveilled. He'd been tailed by ICE even to his lawyer's office. So I live very close to the church and I told him, just call me, I'll come drive by. So it was kind of just being, trying to be present. It's very much a 24-hour seven-day-a-week kind of commitment, which we've learned a lot, I think, those of us that were in the core organizing teams, and we might structure things differently in terms of people's capacity, people's burnout, people's job needs and family needs. There was coordinating with the team at First Congregational. We have a Quaker team, and then there's a team at the church where he was staying, and how do we help make it work between different spaces and different organizing structures. and That tight bond between the Albu Muhammad family would be crucial in sanctuary during some of the key moments for the family's history. In this next segment, we will be weaving in and out of Tina and Courtney's memories of some of the most challenging moments of sanctuary for the Albu Muhammad family. Let's take a listen. So... As the months went by, I mean, no one expected it would last so long. As the months went by, you know, it's wearing. It was wearing on his family, going back and forth between two homes. It's wearing on his wife. And as what you think is going to be a few months turns into who knows how long, and then you're in this limbo. So it just becomes more challenging. You can imagine everything you ever did anywhere else has to only be in one space. 
in a church, not always in the basement, but they were living in the basement. Then his son died, and I happened to live pretty close to the church, and the volunteer that was on duty that day knew me, so heard that the family sounded really distressed, called me, and I went immediately over, and they had just found out not long before, an hour maybe, that their son, their third child, had passed. He was 19. Their daughter, who was only 17 still at that time, had had to deliver that news to her parents. When my brother passed away, I just got done working a graveyard at my job, and I was I was at my house, and I got a, a voicemail saying that my brother had passed away. And I was thinking, like, oh my goodness, like, is this real? And then uh, my brother called me that morning as well, and he was talking to me, and he said he would be on a flight out here that night, and that he would tell my dad that my brother passed away. But I guess Facebook, social media, has a way of getting to things before you can. So it was like, I guess, all over Facebook, and my brother called me again, telling me that I needed to go tell my dad that my brother passed away before he saw it on Facebook. And so how do you prepare yourself for something like that? So I... I had to go into the church and I had to look my dad in the face and tell him that my brother passed away. And that was, uh, it was really hard because I, I saw him as a person break because he just lost his best friend, you know? I was the youngest, but he, my brother was his baby. He cared for him and took care of him as much as he could. And um, I think that was the first time that I saw my dad cry. Like, really, actually, he cried at the press conference, too, but I think that that was the first time I saw him, like, break. Like, it was really hard. And then him having to miss the funeral was another really big thing because in our culture, before they get buried, they don't get buried in caskets. There's a cloth where it's, like, uh, blessed by the priest. And then so before he gets wrapped in the cloth, like, it's the father's duty to, like, wash his son of all of his sins and, like, bless his body and, like... All of that and so he he wasn't able to do that as well and that's something super religious to him so that was another thing that was really big for him so having to see him go through that and then still somehow smile really empowering to me so at 19 I think my dad has taught me a lot that I needed to learn and we learned later that ice actually was at the church and at the grave Family members and other people reported to us that they were approached by ICE agents. So that was pretty devastating news. It was quite devastating. They were all devastated. And so we called some other people to come, the pastor of the church and some other team members, as well as some of our team members, to come and just be with the family and try to help them move through this horrible grief. And then as those months played on, it was just an incredibly difficult time for the family. Their daughter needed some advocacy at school so she could walk with her class in graduation, and that's something that I became involved with. For my graduation, it was really hard because, I don't know, my dad always was there for me through high school, so he was like, yeah, I'll be there when you graduate. And then when he couldn't be there, I was like, what's the point? Like, the one person who has seen me through everything can't be there. Um, it was really hard because it was like I really wanted him to be there. It was something so small that I felt like I had deserved. That was really hard. Later that summer or fall, his son Ali was married and he couldn't go to the wedding. When we had went to my brother's wedding, I actually wasn't going to go. 
it was more like a family thing, I felt like. It was like my dad should be there, you know, but my brother convinced me to go for his sake, you know, not to miss out on that. And I was like, okay, so I will go. And it was just really hard FaceTiming my dad through the wedding. You know, it was like he should be right here or like giving his son a little pep talk before he gets married to the woman of his dreams, you know. I don't know, I think he he missed out on a lot. And then my other brother, Austin, he graduated from the Navy. So that's another really big thing. And I just feel like my dad missed so much in these two years that now he's just trying to be a dad again. So as these impacts played out, it was just more and more difficult, I think, for them. Over the last six months, I think it just had become almost unbearable. We were trying to figure out how to create different support, different ways of support, different ways to just be in community with the family to help them through what looked like we didn't know how much longer, as well as what are ways we can try to advocate for his case so that it moves, because it was just kind of stalled. The whole thing was taking so much longer. Just this spring, as we were looking at forming, had started working toward a different kind of organizing for his case and for support for the family and him. We received the news that he'd won his case. He'd won his motion to reopen. His case was reopened. His order of removal was vacated, and he could go home. And the shift in everyone's, the whole family's sense of lifted, like there's this like 3,000 ton weight was off their shoulders, and he could consider going home. As Tina mentions, a weight had been lifted from the family when they found out that Kadeem's deportation had been vacated. He could leave sanctuary and go home. Next, we will hear from the press conference that just happened a few weeks ago when the announcement was made. We are going to be hearing from Rebecca Kitson, Kadeem's lawyer, Kadeem himself, and Rehab, Kadeem's wife. Escuchemos. Just this month, we received word that that motion to reopen has been granted and the removal order has been vacated. So just to recap a little bit, it was actually two years ago to this day that Kadam entered sanctuary. He had a final order of removal that had been entered against him in 2006. The Department of Homeland Security at that time was moving forward with attempting to remove Kadam in spite of his ongoing and active service to the U.S. military. It was only in 2017 where they were really looking at executing that removal order. When Kadam entered sanctuary, his case really ramped up. It took the government a long time to process his case. We were able to secure approval of preliminary petitions within about a year. And after that, we filed a formal motion to reopen with the Board of Immigration Appeals last year. So now we're going to hear from the man of the hour, Mr. Qadam Al-Bu-Muhammad himself. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Before I come in here, I have a lot of things to say. Now I don't have nothing to say, just I say, <laughs> I say I love you guys. Like two years. It's two years is like a small world, but if you count it, like 737 days and 12 hours, 14 hours. It is hard to me. I fight in this all these days. I fight with myself, with my emotional, with my heart, with my, with my very body. When I go outside, I say, Probably I give up. I will turn myself to ice. I just got tired. When I go upstairs and I see that volunteer is up there, he's wasting time, you know, 
I don't want to these people like behind me. When they ask me, how are you doing, Karim? I say, I'm doing good. I've changed my mind. But sometimes I be crying. I put my head under this fellow and screaming really, really loud. When sometimes he be waiting, I live in Lombo. I don't, I don't know. I believe in the century for one year, two years, three years. I don't know. It is it's hard time to me. But when I see you guys, you give me very hope. You let me, I keep doing it every day, more and more and more until this moment. Really, I appreciate the God first time. Thank you, God. Yes, I'm happy in this moment. And same this moment, I'm sad. Probably never I see the another faces again or I see you. Does it make me sad? I wish I'd be with you all time. Trust me, I don't like to be go home. I just want to keep doing it in century. That is my house. <laughs> Honestly, that is the truth. Because I'm scared to go home. Because everything is be changed. I don't know. I, but here, I know everything. I know any doors. I count the... <laughs> Yeah, honestly, I count all the tears, you know, like I have everything. I know the doors, I know every, everything. Like, I think uh, Tim, he don't know about it, I know about it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. I'm really appreciate you keep me here today. Without you, I can't do nothing. Thank you very much. Thank you. I told you I got a lot to say, but I forgot what I said. <laughs> I know. I have that. طبعاً أول شيء بس كنت كنت أقول إنه أنا أشكركم كلكم أنتوا كنتوا إلنا عائلة وعمري وحياتي إنه أنا ما راح أنساكم. So first of all, I want to thank all people here. You are as my family. I will not forget you for never. طبعاً سنتين ما كانت هينة بالنسبة إلي كامرأة كزوجة إنه زوجي. إنه زوجي بعيد عني وبعيد عن البيت ففضلت إنه أنا أعيش وياه هناك ما أروح لبيتي وأظل عايشة وياه أنا أنا وبنتي بقينا عايشين هنا بالسنتوري وياه بالكنيسة. So two years is a long time for me but it's past and I always want to stay here to live with my husband, my daughter and me. So it is uh, the feeling that I, I have that time is very, very close to my heart too, and also for my husband. There you have it, folks. You get to hear some words from Kadim himself, who speaks about the difficulty of leaving sanctuary. His wife also talks about being thankful for the volunteers and the relief that leaving sanctuary can represent for the family. So when I had the opportunity to talk to Courtney, I had to ask, what has life post-sanctuary been like for the family? This is what she had to say. My dad's still kind of scared. He doesn't leave the house very often. He's always looking out the window. I don't think he believes it's real yet. Like, he's at home, but uh, the only places he's gone is to my brother's grave. And so that really hit him. That got really real after he went to the graveside. Um... But that's about it. Everything has been kind of still feels like the church in a way because he he doesn't leave the house. He just uh, steps outside. The church had a courtyard where he could walk upstairs and take the dogs for like just to go outside and uh, run around. He does that in the front yard, but he doesn't like 
like he I haven't noticed him like walk to the mailbox walk to the car like the things that he can do now he just hasn't hasn't done them yet and I think it's uh he's still shifting it was two years and oh gosh you say two years and it seems so little but it's like two years I can't believe it the family speaks about the impacts along the two years of sanctuary and their appreciation for the volunteers who helped along those two years so when I sat down with Tina sanctuary organizer I had to ask how does someone come to the personal decision of being with a family and individual that they don't know over the course of two years? Tina will answer that. And also, Daniel will also follow up on this important question with his own perspective. For me, I had been doing a lot of learning and trying to grow around understanding the histories of racism and colonization in this country. And those are talked about a lot and and then not talked about. <laughs> so for me personally, I have a daughter who's of a different race. And so it's very deeply personal conversation as well. So for me, I'm white. My daughter is not. Early on learned that in order to parent her as best as I can, I needed to understand what it was like to grow up as a person of color in this country and to really grapple with my own whiteness, to really understand what it feels like to receive be on the receiving end of the constant barrage of racist policies, acts, microaggressions that happen every day, and also really challenging myself and having been challenged by people I really respect to not just like talk about it and not just show up when it's convenient, but to really, at least to some degree, put it on the line, you know, like not just say, well, that's somebody else's problem or no that that's going to cost too much for me or like what am I going to how am I going to give up my privilege how am I going to not just use it to advocate for other people but be willing to give some of it up and I'm not sure I even can ever do that really but this over many years has become deeply important to me it also has to do with my learning around decolonization and that's the same the same answer how do we really look deeply and broadly at the systems that this nation is built on and to simply say why simply reforming a system within a system that's built on systems that are messed up doesn't quite get us there. So how do we look deeper? We have to look deeper and recognize that the church is an institution. It's a, also a spiritual place of healing and comfort and growth but it's also a powerful institution. So trying to combine those things in whatever way I could through my own life and presence is sort of all brought me to like, okay, this is a thing I can do. And I'm kind of throw myself into it. For anyone that's working in these cases of sanctuary, it's something very personal and visceral. It's how there's someone from someone from the non-affected community coming to, into and volunteering for one of the sanctuaries. They talk to one of the two people that are in sanctuary, and when you find that piece that you can identify with with that person, it's not like, oh, like like NPR was right about that. Next, Courtney will talk to us on her reflection on volunteers as well as what sanctuary means for those who are still living in sanctuary in different parts of the country. A follow-up on Emma's case, she is now back in Honduras after her deportation notice had been vacated. 
She is waiting to hear back from immigration with the notice of being able to return to the U.S. She is with her family in Honduras after not seeing them for over 26 years. She awaits returning to the U.S. with her family here. Like, I'm so thankful for everybody that offered my dad sanctuary, that volunteered. Like, they only spent four hours a day there, you know what I mean? They did something so small, but it was so big in my eyes. Like, I talk about sanctuary, it was a win for my family, you know? And I really want it to be a win for other families. Sanctuary is very impactful, and it kind of turns your world upside down as a family. So for the people in Denver and Chicago... We're not done with all this sanctuary movement. There's still just a couple of names, Jeanette, Ingrid, Rosa. These are all people from Denver that are in sanctuary. These are all families that have to go through the same thing that we're going through. So, yeah, we won today, but there are other people in the world that we need to win for as well. Thank you, guys. I want them to have wins too, you know? Mi esperanza es que yo pueda arreglar mi situación legal. Que yo pueda arreglar mi situación legal para poder encontrarme con mi familia en Honduras. ¿Cuánto tiempo ha sido que no has podido encontrar familia? 26. 26 Here are some final words and thoughts offered by Courtney, Tina, and Danielle on Sanctuary. I think it's very important that people start to understand Sanctuary, start to understand the people that are in Sanctuary, the reason that they're in Sanctuary. Like, I think people are very quick to judge, and I think we need to see them more as people first. And just like my dad says, open your heart first. When you open your heart, you can open the door. So I feel like that's very big. We just need to have more feelings for these people they're people they have families lives like they all have goals for me personally and i think almost anyone who's been uh, involved and especially anyone deeply involved is is just to say what an honor and a privilege it is to been so closely related to the movement of both of these cases and to become so closely connected with both of these families and to to watch their their strength and fortitude i hope that we can find ways to bring more churches and more people into the support and solidarity with people that are facing the system. Now, there are the next step in, in the sanctuary movement is calling on churches to sign up to be safe harbor for large numbers of people if ICE actually starts doing these massive sweeps. That's the next call. There's just so much fear, and people need to know that there's there's so many people out there that are defending their, their humanity and dignity and, and uh, the right they have to seek a better life. We thank you for listening to tonight's show titled A Family's Journey in Sanctuary, featuring the story of Kadeem's family in Sanctuary as told primarily through the words of his daughter, Courtney. A few questions and thoughts come up from today's show that we would like to pose to you. 
What is the role of American institutions, like that of religious and spiritual institutions, to uphold the freedom and liberty when our government does not? From Kadim and Emma's relationship through sanctuary, we can see that language, culture, and religion can serve as a bridge to bring us closer together rather than separating us. And finally, what can we do as a community members to take up the challenge to ensure that human rights are being met here in the United States? And with that, we would like to take the time to thank a few individuals and recognize organizations that helped make this episode possible. We would like to first thank Kadeem's family for opening up their doors to us and sharing their important stories in Sanctuary. If you would like to support them in their post-Sanctuary efforts and move, please visit their GoFundMe page titled Help Kadeem's Transition Out of Sanctuary. Again, that GoFundMe page is help Kadeem's transition out of sanctuary. We would also like to thank sanctuary organizers and members of the New Mexico Faith Coalition for Immigrant Justice, like Justin Raymer Thamer, Daniel Vega, Tina Cachel, and Marion Bach for helping contribute to this episode. Additionally, we would like to thank the Humans of New Mexico Project for help with their audio recordings of Marion Bach's contributions. Those recordings stem from another podcast episode for Espejos de Slan titled Readings and Recollections with Demetria Martinez. And you can go back to our May episode to listen to that episode. We would also like to thank the Undocu Talks podcast for contributing some of the audio for this show. You can visit their podcast and look up their episode titled Sanctuary and Sovereignty to listen to more of those recordings. And finally, part of the original press conference for Kadim's sanctuary announcement was contributed from a small video segment done by Evelina Lopez. The music you heard from those segments were created by Lifted Lamps and Jesse in the Rebellator, featuring Amy Cusalda. You can find this show and other shows in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Please take the time to hit subscribe and rate us to ensure that more people are able to discover us on our Espejos de Aslan podcast. I have been your producer and host, Rafael Martinez. Joining me in the production of tonight's show was Froilán Orozco.